This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're joined by Steve Strongen, one of the firm's senior advisors, to talk about ESG investing. Steve and his team in Goldman Sachs Research have a new report out called Sustainable ESG Investing, Turning Promises into Performance. Welcome back to the program, Steve. Pleasure to be here as always, Jake. I think you might be one of my most frequent interlocutors, so that's a good thing. So in your research, you you talk about how the focus on ESG is an investment style and not as a force for good. So explain why you took that particular approach. Sure. Over the years, a lot of things have happened in investing where investors wanted something to work or was important to investors. If you look at the long haul, it really only works if it actually delivers returns. You know, most people managing money have fiduciary responsibility to generate returns. So if something in the end doesn't actually help generate returns, it tends to be a fad rather than a lasting part of the investment environment. So you focus a bit on time frame and how that factors into the performance of ESG investing. Why should investors think longer term about their ESG strategies and, and not just short term? The heart of that is what ESG is all about. ESG is really a belief, an idea that if corporations have respect for human values, care about the environment, care about diversity, care about the way the company itself is managed, that that's going to make it a better company in the long haul, that's going to allow it to take better advantage of various opportunities. It's not like cost cutting, where you do it today and the return is tomorrow. These are things that are going to unfold over two years, three years, five years, 10 years. And unless the investor understands that, they're going to end up very disappointed. So what is the proper time frame by which to judge and measure ESG performance? I'd probably start with a minimum of three and then understand, much like we do with private equity, that depending on the environment, that may have to be extended, right? So for instance, if you started an ESG fund 12 months ago, you'd probably want to wait until COVID played itself out before you started assessing performance metrics. So ESG is notoriously broad and and sometimes ill-defined, spans many categories. A growing one is diversity and talent. What's the relationship between diversity and performance? And what do you mean in the report when you say diversity requires real commitment, not just good statistics? Right. So the literature on the management side on diversity is very clear. Diverse teams are more creative, more thoughtful, more inventive than terms that the teams that don't have that diversity. On the other hand, from a business standpoint, that's something that takes time to play out and takes real work, right? In other words, if your teams are going to have more impact, you actually have to empower the teams to have that impact. You have to construct them so that everyone in the team has voice and the teams need to be diverse. That's a fairly complex undertaking. That's not just hiring six people who don't look like you. So another category, maybe one of the earliest categories of ESG investing is focused around climate. What implications do carbon tax prices have on investors? And and why is it that many green climate change answers may turn out to be sort of economic dead ends? Sure. This is one of the sort of classic problems when you think of ESG kind of as a bumper sticker as opposed to an investment stock. As long as it's on the right side of history, it's supposed to be a good investment. The world isn't that kind. Right? So there are lots of good ideas and lots of good intentions that end up not working. And so when you look at environmental investing, someday 
we're going to end up with a price of carbon, either implicit or explicit within the regulations, that's going to set the efficient frontier for addressing climate change. We're not there yet. We're probably not going to be there in the next three years, but in the next five or 10, we will be. Now, investments that are going to reduce carbon emissions that are more efficient than that number are going to be good long-term investments. On the other hand, expenditures which use a lot of money to save a small amount of carbon are going to turn out to be economically not viable and not part of forward climate policy. And so as an investor, you want to be focused on the part of the carbon technology that's going to last and be part of the solution in five and 10 years, not the part that's going to look economically silly in retrospect. So you talk a little bit about government policy in the ESG space. This isn't a place where, at least in the U.S., government's been particularly active, at least at the federal level. You say in your research that investing can and should run ahead of the current political consensus. That's probably true beyond ESG, but not too far ahead. So explain the dynamic there. Sure. The the issue you have from an investment standpoint is that governments do respond to public beliefs. You know, you say that governments, U.S. government hasn't been active. It's actually been very active, but not in a we believe in ESG sense, but in the sense that after the financial crisis, you saw credit laws change. In the 70s, you saw environmental laws change. And so the companies need to be prepared for those coming regulatory changes, those coming environmental law changes, those coming diversity rule changes in order to be efficient. Now, that doesn't mean that if you did any of those things today, right, it's going to economically work out for you tomorrow, right? If so, if you invest today for something that's not going to happen for 10 years, your rate of return is not going to be very high. On the other hand, if you invest today for something that's going to happen in a year or two years, that can be an incredibly powerful investment. You introduced the phrase flashpoints as central to performance and to social mission. Now, we think we know what flashpoints mean, but explain how you use the phrase flashpoint. How can they help portfolio managers assess which companies are embracing that long-term perspective of ESG rather than just sort of checking the box? I think it's essential to realize what a flashpoint is statistically as well as morally and psychologically. There are lots of points of progress that occur over time. You know, whether it's the March on Selma or it's the recent Black Lives Matter movement or it is the environmental protests in the 1970s, things come together that make people realize things have to change. Those are the flashpoints. They aren't easy to predict, not their form or their substance. Nevertheless, we know, you know, the sort of march of human dignity that rights expand over time, they don't shrink over time that respect for people's lifestyle increases over time. It doesn't move backward. Our concern with the environment grows over time. It doesn't shrink. And so being prepared for that march forward of progress, but thinking carefully about where the focal point is likely to be, can both improve the human outcome and the investing outcome. So can ESG investing actually be a sustainable strategy? More specifically, what is needed for ESG to remain a sustainable framework for investing rather than just, as you said, another fad? Right. I think the answer to that is deceptively simple. The answer is that ESG funds need to provide excess returns. That when you look at the long scope of investing history, people put money where it makes them money. And that also tends to be what generates the most progress. Diversity wouldn't be the force it is if it wasn't actually good economics. We realize when we look at what's going on in climate that the economics will force us to good climate policy, even if our beliefs don't. And so understanding that 
forces you to realize that if you're going to invest for the long term in ESG, you actually have to do it in a way that's going to make money for your investors. Understanding which parts of the environmental movement actually will end up profitable and will end up part of the long term solution. What types of commitments to diversity actually make your workforce a good workforce that will make you competitive for the long haul is essential to running a business long haul. It's also going to generate returns for the business and generate returns for the investor. That sweet spot where it's doing both good and doing well is what's sustainable. Doing only one of them tends not to work out long term. So uh, a quick recap in 30 seconds or less, what have been some of the obstacles that investors are facing as they think about ESG investing? I think metrics and the easy answer has been the problem. ESG is at its heart, a very nuanced, deep concept. And people would like it to be simpler than it is, right? A checklist of things that if you do them, you're a good company. Separate chairman and CEO of a company. Sign a green pledge. Commit yourself to diversity targets. It was actually that easy to do these things. Both the investing and the doing would be straightforward. The trick is understanding the difference between having diverse statistics and giving diverse people voices. It's the difference between efficient environmental policies that make good sense for the economy and good sense for the environment versus ones that just sound nice. It's governance that is good in practice, not just on paper. Those are the things that really make ESG work long haul. All right, Steve, thanks for joining us today. A pleasure as always. Make sure to check out Steve's report, Sustainable ESG Investing, Turning Promises into Performance, available wherever you get your Goldman Sachs research. That concludes this episode of Exchanges of Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Tune in later this week for our weekly markets update, where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Monday, July 13th in the year 2020. Thanks for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.